we provide unique enrichment for middle grade kids, third through eighth graders. What we do is we use puzzles and games that are embedded in a fantasy story to draw kids in to do and tackle challenges that are super fun and also super hard so that they learn how to struggle in a productive way. They learn how to problem solve. What we say we're doing often is creating solvers as well as creators and leaders. Hello, and welcome to NCAGT's first ever podcast, They'll Be Fine. I'm your host, Katherine Caldwell. Time and time again, we hear they'll be fine. They're smart. They're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum and services. The National Association for Gifted Children reports that 73% of teachers agree that too often the brightest students are bored and underchallenged in schools because we're not giving them a sufficient chance to thrive. Our nation's education policies narrowly focused on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of these high ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. And while this is a very important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. So here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We're here because the saying, they'll be fine, just isn't good enough. On today's episode of They'll Be Fine, we had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with the Silver Quicken team. As you heard Chris state, Silver Quicken is puzzles and games that are engaging and challenge students in a productive way. We have never had so many guests on at one time and it was such a treat. And to help our listeners not get confused by who's talking when, we started off by letting them introduce themselves And this really led to a beautiful picture of seeing how their stories all wove together and led them to Silver Quicken. We hope you enjoy. Uh, My name's Chris, uh, Chris Ryan. I'm a CEO and co-founder of Silver Quicken Education. And my background uh, that's relevant here, for one thing, I was accelerated uh, as a kid. I skipped second grade and was in with much bigger kids and I had already started early. And that was because two other kids and I were considered like, oh, you're, I don't even know if the term gifted exactly was used, but you're different, you're special. And so moved us up. And um, at various points in my schooling, I did the Johns Hopkins talent search. I'm in this study of mathematically precocious youth, which is, I found out yesterday, it's 50 years. It's a longitudinal study. I joined it. That tells you, I didn't join it right at the start, but I joined it pretty early. So had this kind of label in some ways. I 
Following that label, I went to Harvard and majored in physics and promptly, not promptly, junior year discovered that, oh, I couldn't just skate by on giftedness and found myself really struggling. And you know what? I didn't know how to struggle productively. I almost mm-hmm. failed out. I almost failed a couple of classes, which is really actually hard to do at Harvard. They really, they like the average grade to be somewhere between an A minus and a B plus. That was a comeuppance for me and also a realization I needed to do something different. And um, my senior year, I, for a variety of reasons, discovered that I wanted to become a teacher, at least for a time. And that got me on this this path that I've been on in some sense ever since. So I taught in one of the early years of Teach for America, physics and chemistry. I continued teaching in some independent schools, went back to business school, met someone you're going to meet shortly, Leslie, at business school. And we were both some of the very few people in our respective classes who were like actively interested in education as a field, having come from it and family and all that sort of thing and wanting to get back into it. I did management consulting, joined a test prep company, that area of the education world, which let me be a coach, sort of a pure coach again. And I stayed with this one company and helped it grow to be the biggest provider of GMAT test prep services. We were acquired by Kaplan. Long story short, I spent 17 years in test prep helping people get better at these standardized tests that I had always been really good at, except for the LSAT. Mm-hmm. We'll come to that maybe later on. Logic puzzles are my Achilles heel, which I actually love that I'm not good at them. And in the middle of 2020, left what was, I spent 17 years, as I said, at Kaplan, um, Manhattan Prep before that, and reconnected. Uh, We've been in touch, but we reconnected over an idea around starting Silver Quicken. And we'll tell you more about that in a bit, but I'll, I'll stop there. And that's probably enough sample of my voice that you can tell. Definitely. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Leslie Kerner. I'm the co-founder and COO of Silver Quicken. And I come to this work through, not through giftedness, actually, like you, Catherine. I grew up being, we didn't have gifted education. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We didn't have at the time. It wasn't, or at least I wasn't part of the gifted program there. So I don't have any personal experience about being gifted, though I was, I was very interested and very passionate about learning, even as a little kid. So that was to, to my parents from my teachers, but never formally And then the school my kids go to doesn't have such a program either. So I actually come to this work through general education as well. I, as Chris said, we met in business school. My career before that had been management consulting. And then, but I knew because my whole family were teachers, actually my my mom and most of my cousins, my now in-laws knew that education and K-12 education specifically was something that I was most passionate about. And so in business school, I decided that I really wanted to focus on that, but from a business perspective. And so after a short stint back with the consulting firm, pay the bills, I went to a startup company. It was an education technology company. I worked there for 13 years through a couple of acquisitions. And most of my work there was with schools. So I worked with teachers, both helping them use our technology and helping them use, which was a reading software. So it was helping them figure out how to use that with their students. And then I started and ran a professional development organization within our company that helped teachers make use of all manner of data to make decisions about how they would structure their classroom and how they would do planning differently and things like that. So spent a lot of time in a lot of classrooms, K-12 
in most states in the U.S. and really continue to be very excited about ways to help teachers do their jobs, which is, as you know, and as Sam knows, and as we all know, it, just so many things on their plates. And so um, when Chris and I reconnected about Silver Quicken, we thought, you know, if this is something that can help inject some joy and rigor into teachers' classrooms and help them reach kids in a different way, that is something that seems like exactly what I wanted to be doing. So um, that's kind of where we are with Silverbrook in here. So awesome. Thank you. All right. I'll go last. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Sam Nguyen and I'm a gifted education specialist here in the Triangle area and also a member of the Silver Quicken curriculum and teaching team. It's funny that we all started with our like school story. I have to say, guys, like I was the non-teacher pleasing kid in school. <laughs> I was not in gifted programming. I did not really do much until like fourth grade. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons why. But it's really funny when I talk to people about like why I got into teaching. I'm like, this has to be some kind of like weird like payback for, <laughs> for how I was as a kid. But no, I think um, my experiences in school shape a lot of the kind of teacher I am now and why I am a teacher right now. I didn't always find school super interesting and didn't really connect a lot with the adults that I interacted with at school until, like I said, late elementary, which seems like crazy late to like really start getting serious. But once I found what I thought was interesting, which at the time was like science and literacy and, you know, found some awesome teachers. Um, shout out to Miss Davis at uh, Weatherstone Elementary. Um, he, you know, inspired me to take my learning a little bit more seriously. And I, once I got the bug, you know, you like, you can't stop it. And I think I started to see school less as this thing I had to go do and more this opportunity for curiosity. So I started to approach school with more curiosity and wonder. I had teachers who made learning fun. And so I think as a teacher myself now, and as a gifted specialist, I cringe when kids talk about the boring parts of the school day. And I'm just like, okay, I know not the whole part of the, the day can be super fun, but if there's anything that I can do to maximize the fun that can be had, I definitely see that as one of my top priorities. Um, but yeah, so I have been teaching for about 12 years. I started as a first grade teacher, taught first, second, third, and then a few years into my uh, teaching career, shifted to gifted education. So I've been a gifted education specialist for about five years, and I really love it. I work in a area with a really high population of gifted learners, and as I was getting more kind of interesting students in my class, and we'll talk more about the different kinds of learners that there are. I started to see students who reminded me a lot of the kind of kid I was in school. And then I met students who frankly, like confounded me and they were interesting to learn about. And so I pursued my gifted certification and I love teaching gifted students, but just kids in general. I think one of my favorite parts of my job is doing general enrichment with the whole school population and through Silver Quicken doing general enrichment for all kids who find it interesting and fun, the work that we do, because I feel like learning should be fun, right? And so to be able to use my teaching expertise and, you know, I really like, I'm a, I'm a creative brain. So I really like coming up with new ideas and ways to teach during the pandemic when Chris and I connected 
he was like, Hey, do you want to join this team and give us feedback? And he started talking to me about the work that he and Leslie were doing. And I was like, this sounds amazing. Yes, let's do this. So I've been kind of helping to create materials and consult on how to calibrate it for the age group that we're working with. And now it's been really awesome meeting folks like you at conferences and talking to teachers about the needs that they have in their classrooms and being a part of that and working to help support them has also been super rewarding for me because while I'm also teaching, I'm also a coach and I really enjoy what Leslie said, helping to support teachers, work with them because ultimately that's going to help our students, right? We want to build capacity Mm -hmm. in all of teachers. So Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's why I do what I do. And I'm excited to be here and chat with you guys today. Awesome. That's beautiful. That really helps me just like weave all of your stories together, listening to each one of you, which leads us into where we are now at Silver Quicken. So if someone has never heard of Silver Quicken before, how would you explain to them what it is? They have nothing to go off of. I'd say that we provide unique enrichment for middle grade kids, third through eighth graders. What we do is we use puzzles and games that are embedded in a fantasy story to draw kids in to do and tackle challenges that are super fun and also super hard so that they learn how to struggle in a productive way. They learn how to problem solve. What we say we're doing often is creating solvers as well as creators and leaders. We do that through after-school programs, through in-school puzzle subscription kits, and also for home. And I'm in the process of taking that fantasy story and turning it into a novel that we hope to publish soon. That's awesome. Soon is a relative term. I wish I had a better, (laughs) like I had something more specific on that, but that's based on the reactions of the kids we've worked with since. Uh, 2020, we think we're onto something with that. So ultimately, both an education arm and even a sort of entertainment arm of the Silver Cooking Secret School of Arts, Mysteries, Magics, and Sciences. That's awesome. That's so exciting. So I feel like I'm sure when you talk to people about Silver Quicken, you guys have talked about how it's for all kids, but especially those gifted kids are really going to love that that extra push and struggle of figuring things out. How would you help people understand what it means to identify someone as gifted, that term? How would you help someone understand that? Sometimes the word gifted itself has this like weird connotation that we've bestowed this giftedness upon you and how great, you know, and uh, sucks to be you, you know, if you, if you were yeah. not. Because of that, I think for sure, there's some stigma with that word itself. And for some in our community, unfortunately, it tends to be something that gets sought after. But I think fundamentally, when I talk to people about what is giftedness, it's really not something to strive for and to achieve. It is a way of being. And I like to explain it with both educators and non-educators about really It's about addressing some real specific needs that kids have. They might be academic or social or emotional, but they require educational supports. And there's tons of definitions out there when we talk about what do we mean when we say giftedness. For the sake of this podcast and being based in North Carolina, I want to shout out our state government and having a general statute called Article 9B because they actually did a really great job. Um, And they defined giftedness in our state as finding students who perform 
or show the potential to perform at substantially high levels of accomplishment. And I think the key in what they were saying with that too, is they said compared with others of their age, experience and environment. And I think that when we frame giftedness as a need that students have, a learning need, I think it really changes the conversation about why we're identifying in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I love their definition. It's super inclusive, particularly when you think about our underserved students and who it is we're talking about. We're not just talking about affluent families who have resources. We're talking about all kids who, if they're demonstrating that compared to their peers or based off of their environment or exposure and opportunity that they're showing these learning differences that require additional services, like these are the students that we're talking about. And it is a large spectrum when it comes to what these students can look like. So I think that the general public doesn't always think about those things. They have maybe this one picture in their mind when they think about a gifted student and so to me, it's it's really more about finding the students who are demonstrating a need for their talents to be encouraged and grown. And like, I, I think every kid should go to school and learn something awesome and feel excited about learning and whether they come from or wherever their starting place is, all kids deserve that, right? So when we talk about giftedness, we do have kids who come in with certain skills already. And we have to be able to grow them from where they are and help them reach their full potential. So to me, like that's what we're really getting at with gifted education and why we have to label in the first place really just comes down to differentiation. And I think how we talk about it, definitely we have choices that we can make and how we want to talk about it. But I prefer to think of it more in terms of how to support kids. I love the way you worded that because it made me think of I feel like so many people think back to like their childhood or maybe their experience with giftedness and like their experiences, like maybe they weren't in the gifted classroom or maybe they were. And I don't know, I think about people that I talk to sometimes who are in education and they still, I feel like have those stereotypes in their head of what giftedness is, because maybe that's what it was, I don't know, 20 years ago. And I just love that whole explanation you just gave, because I think it painted a really beautiful picture of what it is to be gifted. And maybe that would help some people put those walls down when they think about giftedness. So I I love the way that you explain that. We've talked about these gifted students when they do hit something that they don't understand, or there is that struggle. We're going to talk a lot about productive struggle today. How would you guys define that term for those listening? I'll take that one. It's within the label. It's struggle that is productive because even the word struggle, I'm struggling. You feel like, oh, I'm not doing well, but it's really productive effort, productive, really, really hard effort. In fact, one researcher calls it productive failure, goes ahead and slaps that label on productive failure. We want (laughs) you to learn how to fail, right? The, um, I I think there was a, a playwright who said fail, then fail better, you know, like, um, so the idea here is start with the challenge and it should be a, a bit of a stretch for the kids, not a, an unproductive one that's going to just frustrate and not such an easy one that's going to bore people. So it's got to be just right. If anything, a little bit on the scary side and, and it should look like a tiger, but ultimately there's a way in and you got to give some time for folks to really go wrong. That's something that. I can speak from my own teaching experience. I did not 
do a lot of productive struggle in my classroom. I'll be honest. It's I hard. Wish I had. It's um, because you got to really let them go down the wrong turn. And at one company I was at, we actually called it poker face. We gave it a term that, okay, when you see them going down the wrong alleyway and there's a vampire, at the, well, vampire might be the wrong word. Let's just say a brick wall. There's a brick wall at the end of it and they're going to run into that brick wall. It's a dead end. Let them run into the brick wall and pick themselves up and then dust themselves off and say, okay, now what? Okay, let's go back, retrace our steps. Where could we go differently? And we really need to allow that to happen. But then it's within this curated safe environment that, you know, within a certain amount of time, uh, I, the teacher, whoever it is, is going to sort of like, we're going to corral you all in. I'm going to give you some breadcrumbs, some hints to help you break through, but you're going to really own the victory because without the real struggle and the real ownership of the aha moments, then you're just telling me the thing. Then I'm not really owning it. So we need the productive struggle to both normalize frustration, let people practice failing. That was the thing that happened to me junior year in college. I had not failed enough to be totally mm -hmm. honest before that. And so for me to run into a really big failure then was actually not good in my own education, right? I should have been practicing it in academic environments. I failed in plenty of other ways, but like <laughs> academically, I thought, oh, everything just sails. And I avoided things that were not... Potential that I thought, oh, that might fail at that. So I'm going to go ahead and steer my ship the other way. So our um, our gifted kids sometimes struggle in Silver Quicken the most at first because they're not used to struggling. They're not, they struggle with struggle. So we want to normalize frustration for them and then and allow them to work through it. And then you really own the victory. Then it's yours. Like I had a kid come up and say, Hey, mentor Chris, I spent two days and I solved that puzzle. And she was so proud. If that had been an assignment, if it hadn't been fun, then she might not have done that. I think about the one student one time who we, there was a puzzle that was, it was a cipher, but it was on a musical staff, like a fictitious looking staff where the um, each line and space were a letter. A different letter. And he was so mad because he was a musician and he was like, this is not real music. This is not what it looks like. This is not how it works. And then once he got the puzzle at the end of the, at the end of the class, we asked everyone what their favorite puzzle was. He's, oh, that music one was my favorite by far. And he had been so frustrated, but he had figured it out and he had gotten over that point of frustration just through hints and through working with his team and through getting it. And then that became his favorite thing that he did. So that to me is always a great example of productive struggle because it was a struggle and it was a struggle for him in particular because of his prior knowledge and skill set. And but he prevailed and he had certain hints to give him the right support, nudge the raft, as as one of our friends says. And he was we found that was a good example of how productive struggle can really happen. And that victory meant so much because he had had so much difficulty getting there. I love that term of poker face because I just oof, went back to myself today in math. Like whenever I hear a student saying something that I know is leading them to the wrong answer, I know it shows on my face. Cause like I show everything on my face anyways. And I don't want them to like, we don't want them to fail. I feel like that's like a mindset. Like I, we, we talk about mistakes. We talk about marvelous mistakes. I used to have a student that if something happened, especially if I made a mistake, He'd be like, oh, marvelous mistake. And would be like, now we get, he had this mindset of that's okay. We'll learn from it. Now we get to have this experience. But I think like making failure, something you said was like making failure, 
like a normal part of the process, like expecting it almost in a way and knowing that like you're going to then continue on from that. I feel like that's so powerful and just not, I feel like not harped on enough in, in schools. We teach science as this already made thing. We don't really teach the process of science. We teach the past output of scientists. Here is... Here are Newton's laws. That's what I used to teach. And when motion and all these things, and we teach kids to solve problems, but we, here it is all done. Whereas the process of getting there was a whole ton of wrong turns and dead ends and going back to, okay, so what else do you see? What else could we teach a process of scientific method? We don't call it that. That's part of our technique is to turn it, turn some things like scientific method into more kid-friendly terms, like see, wonder, pretend, test. What do you see? What does that make you wonder? Uh, okay, let's pretend that's true and test it out. Oh, it didn't work? What else do you see? What else did you notice? Mm-hmm. What else can you wonder about that? And that process only really takes flight when we allow the seeing and the wondering to go down wrong paths that don't ultimately prove the, that don't ultimately lead to the answer or whatever. And that's part of the reason why we love puzzles so much because they're nice contained sort of places to explore, but they're bite-sized. They allow for, hey, in a short, relatively short period of time and without too much crazy effort, we can bring it back and we can help you then have that victory. So we want our students to be able to do all of this. We want them to have this mindset. So then you all had this idea of Silver Quicken. How did you, how are these activities and materials designed and created to help students have this experience? I think the premise, the premise of all of our programming is about exactly what we've talked about fun and rigor together. So we have super fun stories and super fun puzzles and super fun games, but they all require kids to think hard and to challenge themselves and each other. Chris is actually writing a novel called The Silver Quicken Mysteries that is going to be a middle grade novel. And already we take parts of that or the world that he's created around that novel and we set our classes or our products in that world. So it's a it's a fantasy world. It's a sort of a virtual reality without getting too much into it. But it's a fun world full of these 10 kids who's, who have superpowers in the virtual world. And so we set up each of our classes or each of our products with this world, and it sets the stage to be something really fun to begin with. And so we create all of our materials to be part of that. For example, there are puzzles that the real life students will do alongside these fictitious kids. So putting them in a scenario where they're trying to save the day with these these superhero kids makes it fun. So they're like, you're at this challenge and you come upon a door, but you can't open it you need to figure out the code or you need to decipher this message. And so together they look at that puzzle and it might be something they've never seen before, but they're excited to do it because it's part of this story. So we really try to design things that are both in and of themselves, like Chris said, self-contained, these puzzles are self-contained experiments, if you will, where kids can see, wonder, pretend and test, but it's in the context of this bigger story or immersive world where they feel like it's just a fun thing that they're doing. And then we've also built, we also build games around that too, that use some of these theories. So we have games that are logic games. We have games that are game that utilize game theory. We have a lot of things that are puzzles in and of themselves, but they're gamified. And so those are also fun for kids. So I think everything we do is focused around that. How do we keep it fun? How do we keep it something that will intrinsically motivate kids? 
It's not an external reward. It's not, we're trying to get the grade. We're not trying to finish it to be the first in the class. We're just trying to do it because it's fun. And we want to know the answer and we want to help this group of kids get to their destination. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's kind of the, the idea behind all of our programming. Definitely. I love that when kids are so excited and about learning and they don't even realize they're learning. Like they don't even realize like how good this is for them and how this is like waking up that brain, like waking up everything in there and all that problem solving. And oh my gosh, I love that. I think that's, I'm just thinking of so many kids in my classroom who will just thrive off of that. So you mentioned some puzzles and games. Could you give just like a couple examples of what a puzzle or game could look like for a kid using this program? Sure. I'll give a couple. One is a kind of standalone one that's called Six Golden Keys. And this is a maze that's got special constraints on it. And you've got to get these six golden keys, but you have to do so by going through these corridors between the rooms where the keys are. And the really hard part is you've got to go through every corridor just once. Can't miss any, can't double back and go back over a corridor. And this is actually the one that one kid mentioned, say, I'm Andrew Chris, I spent two days solving that puzzle. And then there are other kids who solve it really quickly and it just depends, right? Now, it turns out that puzzle is based on some mathematics that was worked out 300 years ago by a famous mathematician. The puzzle is called the Seven Bridges of Königsberg. The mathematician Euler, really famous one who created a brand new branch of mathematics called graph theory that came out of that. It's not like graphs like with XY, it's like these connected nodes. And actually that's like what the internet is, right? But we don't teach that anywhere in K-12. We decided what the curriculum would be for math, a hundred years ago, we said, there shall be trigonometry and, you know, or whatever else. Yeah. And hey, I love math. I was a physics major. So obviously I love the stuff, but it wasn't until I was out of K-12 that I really realized. And actually towards the end of K-12, I had some teachers who took me to like, really shout out to Mr. D, Father Slybin, all these, you know, who did like, took me in, in like really crazy cool directions with, with math. And that also opened me up to to realize, hey, there's really cool math that could be embedded in these puzzles and cool linguistics. We have kids solving the Georgian alphabet from Georgia over by the Black Sea and the Amharic syllabary that's used in Ethiopia. And they're just really cool looking. Georgian looks like Elvish from the Lord of the Rings or something. And our kids figure it out using logical deduction using C1 to pretend test. Those are standalone puzzles in, in some of our after school. But then what Leslie was describing was we have quests where we've really embedded the puzzles inside. Hey, you've come to this door and, or there's a book that's glowing on the shelf. Let's pull it off and open the book opens itself up and out pops a crazy cool message with all kinds of letters and you've got to figure out the pattern to decode the message. And it's, again, nothing you've ever seen before. So you just have to try things out. I think those are some of our favorite puzzles and games when we've really embedded them in the story. Not everything can be that way, but when we've gotten the kids alongside the fictional kids and it's not that, Hey, they're role-playing. We didn't, we haven't gone that far, but where you feel like you're in the story and you're helping to crack the code, get out of the locked library or whatever it is, that that's the part where the puzzles have some extra meaning. 
Another type of puzzle that we try to do is a multi-layered puzzle. We tell kids sometimes that some puzzles are like apples and some puzzles are like onions. Some are just right there and they have one layer and some you have to dig and they have multiple layers. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking of one where it's a maze on its face, but as you go through, as you trace through the maze, you're tracing past a bunch of numbers. And then they notice these numbers and they're like, oh, we have six numbers. What is that? What do you think that means? Because there's a question mark at the end of the maze. They're like, it must be a question, but what does that mean? What do the numbers stand for? And it turns out the numbers are cipher for letters. And so the numbers correspond oh. to their letters. So it's really three layers. You have to get through the maze. That is fun in and of itself. You have to notice that there are these numbers and then you have to, um, you have to decipher the numbers into letters. And then sometimes it's even a question that is a logic question or some kind of question that they then have to answer. So um, I, I mentioned that just as a way to describe the sort of multi-layers of puzzles that, that we use, but that are also out there in, in the world and that make the learning fun because it's like you just keep digging and digging and that, that's really fun for kids. That's awesome. And I think that's so cool that you've taken things from history and other places in the world, brought it into this game. Like they're learning about these things. That, and I love that. I think that's so true that there's so many things that kids need to learn about that just aren't in the curriculum. And we feel like we don't have time to get to. Like, I love exposing them to like new things. There's kids who maybe have never experienced something that people don't realize that kids have never experienced that. And so I just think that's really cool to get to expose them to all these different, I don't know, different parts of different cultures that they may never get to see or get to manipulate like with the languages and stuff. Yeah. It's a big world. Yeah. And I remember what turned me on when I was 13 to languages as much as anything else was my sister brought home a book in Russian. She had just started taking Russian. And I looked at that Cyrillic alphabet. I was like, what? That's a backwards R. What is that? Oh, that's a ya? Wait, there, and it really, wait, there are other alphabets? I mean, I knew there were other alphabets, but I hadn't really like dug in. And so I just started studying it on my own. Now there are so many more ways to through the internet, or there would have been a lot more support at schools now, I think, for that. But but yeah, we think that we don't want the breadth of things to be scary. Like, okay, now I have to master all these languages and all these mm -hmm. things. But rather, it's like, hey, some kids are going to see that six golden keys puzzle and the graph theory, and they're going to want that to dig deeper. Okay, here's that ancient puzzle that they solved, or here's a... And if not, hey, it's just a puzzle. We move on. It's not like, oh, we want to take the curriculum and cram more things in, mm -hmm. you know, and now you must master Georgian and Amharic. And it's no, what of all those things do you really find cool and interesting? All right, we've put it in front of you. Run. Let's go with that. I love that. Just that exposure of so many different things. That's such right. a good idea and not going too deep into everything. I love that. So there's such a push, and I feel like we've talked about this a little bit so far, but for these 21st century skills, getting kids ready for, you know, the real world and like when they grow up and everything, um, how do you feel like Silver Quicken and the things that kids are doing in this, these games, teach them and encourage them to use those 21st century skills? I think it's really funny, like when we think about 21st century skills, like at this point, it's like almost outdated like we really need to be thinking about the 22nd century skills yeah, like definitely. I don't know what that's going to be but I sure as heck want to prepare kids to figure that out when they're that next generation is taking that on so like I mentioned earlier I, I think like god education is just so powerful and like when you find that thing that inspires kids to like 
Chris said, learn another language or ask those questions. Why? At, like, I think we need kids who are curious and open to these different learning um, that they're going to have to do. I don't even know what they're going to be, frankly, when they're adults. It's a little scary. But the things that our program hits on that we've already talked a little bit about the critical thinking that's required to do some of these puzzles. And we know that by doing them together, we're also fostering the community building and communication skills. In the Silver Quicken world, there's a really cool thing that I want to tell you guys about. It's called the strands. And it's kind of a way to think about... Um, almost like the growth mindset part of that world. And we talked to the students about how everybody has these different strands. And the first is called find path. And it's like being a problem solver, critical thinker. When you're being a weaver chanter, you're like tapping into your like divergent thinking, creative brain, you're an innovator. And then we have our commons keeping side, which is really like your interpersonal skills, your social skills, being able to bring people together. And so we kind of like weave these strands, no pun intended, we weave them through <laughs> our class and they provide us in addition to the content themselves, providing opportunities for the critical thinking, for the challenge, for the creativity. There are like these dispositions that we're also trying to support kids with and by naming them and giving like kid-friendly language to talk about these parts of themselves, we're really supporting metacognitive thinking. And I think that's going to be huge for kids one day to go from taking information in to using it or starting to ask the questions themselves and think about themselves as learners and where they want to go on their learning trajectory. We want them to be able to reflect on that. And it sounds like crazy, but as third graders, they can totally do this stuff we have kids in the program who like really quickly realize, oh, I'm a really strong find path. Like I figured that puzzle out really fast, but then like they don't have the best social skills. And so we can actually use these strands to help bolster these different 21st century skills. And in a way, like they realize as they're in it, like, oh, okay, I got to work on that too. But it's done in a positive way. Um, and we provide lots of opportunities for these like little teachable moments and chances to celebrate success and celebrate growth in these areas. Uh, one of the activities that we do with the after school club is we have all these fictional like questions, like what would you do if Chris help me out? What was one of them about finding a mythical creature? Yes. Or, You're walking through the silver quicken forest and you encounter a wyvern and it says it's going to eat you unless you answer a, a particular question about it's like a puzzle like the sphinx asked and it's what's wet full of holes and and then you in response you the fine path says okay so i solved the puzzle and right. by the way it's a sponge and then the commons keeper is i convinced the wyvern not to eat people and become friends with it and the the weaver channel says, wait what's a wyvern and like where yeah. back on up oh what does it look like and so it's we have this kind of these kind of quiz questions to like activate different parts and and doing that through this kind of separate environment lowers the stakes that's a really important thing that we try to do in all our stuff is hey one way to take the fun out of it is turn it into a standardized test mm. get really high stakes right spend yeah. a lot of time in that world let's lower the stakes let's make it really fun let's 
have it be about in the forest of silver quicken and by the way those are dragons that don't have front claws they have wings and uh and two feet and then you see them on like shields and stuff weaver channers out there (laughs) anyway so we give these kids these really cool ways to then think about themselves and we know as educators what those things are like oh that's our kid who's like really good at logical deduction who is fine path or my divergent thinker or like my kind of spacey kid who's got a rich inner life going on. Um, and then, you know, our, our commons keepers, you know, sometimes, um, you know, that can look two different ways. There can be the, the leader that rallies the troops. And then we have like the manipulator too, who like really knows how to work people, um, to their advantage. And we take all of these, you know, all the kids as they come in and help them recognize these parts of themselves through our program. We provide the, like I said, these activities, which the activities themselves are going to be fun and challenging and really push them to think more critically and to approach with wonder and curiosity and think we've described like almost that whole list of 21st century skills, like even global awareness, like understanding that, you know, with the MRX script, that's a thing and finding ways to incorporate technology too. Like some of our puzzles are numerical or binary or like you talked about Euler circuits. Like we, we find lots of ways to bring the world in and engage kids in ways that, you know, they're going to kind of like, we, we always have like a kid in the first class who's like too cool for school. And they're like, what is this? What do I have to do? And it never fails by the end of the class. Like, they're like, so tell me more about this script thing, <laughs> you know, or they're like writing you secret messages in the new font that you've discovered as a group. And like when those things start to happen and the kids start asking those questions, you've done your job, right? Like I I want at the end of this for them, for it to be less me and more them. And so for them to be asking the questions and doing the wondering and like Chris had mentioned earlier, knowing what to do when they fail, like fundamentally, that's what we want them to be able to do and be successful out there in whatever the world looks like in the 22nd century, right? So all of these things come together to make sure that they're prepared and hopefully have fun while doing it because what's the point? Learning should be fun. I love how there's so many different ways for different kids to enter this, like with so many different like skill sets. And I love that because I think sometimes there's things that we might do where certain kids think that they're the ones that are going to be good at this. And other kids may think that they're not going to be good at this activity or something like that. And I just love how it it sounds like there's so many different pieces that so many different types of kids can feel like, okay, this might be something that I would be good at. Or maybe, I don't know, they see something in it that clicks in their brain. There really is. And I think that's one of the ingredients we strive for when we're creating these tasks, these puzzles, these games, like It almost has to be something that nobody's ever seen before, or at least presented in a way that it really levels the playing field for everyone. A lot of our puzzles really only need whatever background we give them and maybe the letters of the alphabet. The rest, there's enough that they can follow that see, wonder, pretend test and discover things as they're going along or test things out, make mistakes and learn from that process. I've used Silver Quick in programming with a lot of my students who English isn't their first language. They've been highly successful um, with doing tasks like this. And in fact, 
I think like the fact that we're doing games and stories, it's like super disarming and it doesn't feel like scary. And it's a little bit easier for kids to then take these risks and try these new things. I think it's really great that even if at the very least, all they do is notice something really interesting that somebody else in the group didn't notice, it pulls them into that team. And we emphasize like with the strands and generally just with the language we use in the program that that has value. Everybody on that team has value and we're going to celebrate and support that. And I think that does wonders for, you know, our students who need that boost and maybe frankly haven't seen themselves as that quote unquote gifted or smart kid, you know, like they're starting to notice what they're bringing to the table. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who are still needing to notice things about these underrepresented kids and what they bring to the table. And I just think puzzles and games are just such an awesome way to, to really have those sandbox moments where you see kids playing around and really watch what they can do because they will amaze you every single time. Just give them a pathway to finally feeling like, oh, like I, I could do this. Like I I can access this. And I think it's so great that talking about high stakes, like how this brings those stakes down for everybody involved. I think it's beautiful going back to like gifted students. I feel like with them, with like when the stakes are high, that like anxiety and that worry and that need for like maybe perfectionism sometimes can be elevated. I think about some of the students I have, one of my, my girls that's gifted, she's almost always the last one done. And it's not that she needs that amount of time, but I see her checking and rechecking. She'll come and ask me questions. And I'm thinking, I know, you know, this, but she's so scared. I think of getting it wrong. And I just think with this, it's beautiful that this is just, it feels so fun and it's not, it's like you said, not this boring high stakes assessment. One of our girls said, in Silver Quicken, it's totally okay to have no idea what you're doing. And she just says this with this big smile. And when we heard her say that, we're like, yes, Aubrey, exactly. That anxious student that you were describing who, you know, I I don't know what it is about girls. It just, they can be like, have the same test scores that everybody else, but they are still like, oh, I'm not a math person or it's, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, come on. Like they, they don't have that self-confidence and this particular kiddo really was worried about taking risks to the point that like some of our kids don't even want to write on the paper we give them. Like we're like, okay, let's here, pop it in a dry erase sleeve. Now go. I'm expecting you to take this leave. It was really powerful in just like six to eight weeks to see them making these little shifts to starting to say things like, I don't know what to do, guys. And be able to admit that to a group of kids who they've known for maybe a week if it's like a mixed group. And like that alone is like a super powerful thing. Like knowing that student, I was like, I can't believe she just said that because she never would have said that before. She probably would have just very quietly struggled with it and maybe reached out for help or who knows, but it empowered her to make that leap. It reminds me of a conversation me and my dad had about just like gender stereotypes about girls are good at this, boys are good at this. And he had said it one time and I was like, let's talk about that. Like, what do you mean? And we were talking about how like my dad was like the person who was like really good at like math and science growing up. And my mom was really good at like reading and writing and things like that growing up. And we were just talking about the danger of speaking that into existence, especially in front of kids. Like 
know, like just because that's something that maybe people felt like used to be, or I don't know, it, I don't believe that. Cause I'm like looking at my kids today and I'm like, no, like I ha- like all different types of kids are good at different things or they have access to growing in that thing. Like I never want a kid to think that just because they are this, that they will be good at this. And I feel like these types of activities, it's just letting, like you said, like other like kids realize that they can excel and they can have that success in different types of activities and different types of subjects and regardless of what the content is. Right on. It's just to say on that point, it's really important that the activity be authentic and challenging because then you're pulled into it and it's got math in it, but you're like going to stick with it because it's fun. And then at the end, you've solved this tough thing. And then Mm -hmm. you can say, hey, you solved this tough math problem. I didn't. You did. So you can't hold on quite to that self-belief like I'm not good at math quite anymore. You got to start letting that go. And so like you can't just tell someone, hey, you're good at math. They're not going to believe it unless they actually are sort of almost, you know, guided into through activities like ours to actually doing something crazy cool and then turning around and, okay, there was math underneath that and you just solved something that like 12th graders don't even see. They're like, what? you know so trickery I love that (laughs) almost yeah it opens the door for like with math especially there's so much weird math out there and when you start talking to kids about those things or like the unsolvable problems they're like wait a second what talk to me about this and it's like wait I thought you didn't like math you know they they're hooked and so they're I think that's what I love the most is that there's just so many little nuggets that kids get to explore in the program and discover things about themselves, discover things about the world, because it's just endlessly cool. And I feel like we've touched on so many social and emotional skills throughout this conversation, but are there any others that maybe we haven't talked about that you want to make sure you mention about Silver Quicken, any social emotional skills that you think it taught along the way? I'll say, um, and Sam did kind of touch in, in this too, but, um, we, as we've mentioned, we have vocabulary that is sort of in-universe vocabulary that we bring to a lot of these social emotional skills. One of them I'm thinking is persistence. And um, I have a sign in my office that says cocoon and butterfly, which is, you know, we we say to the kids is when in one of our lessons, we say the butterfly can only fly when it breaks out of its own cocoon or chrysalis. Um, but if you were to break it out of its cocoon, its wings wouldn't be strong enough for it to fly. It wouldn't work. And so likewise, you have to be the one to solve the puzzle. And that seems to really resonate with kids sometimes. And I think sometimes you have some of your anxious kiddos who are like, am I doing this right? What do I do first? What does this mean? And in some of my classes I've had, I always think about my little girl who she came to me and she said, what do I do first? And I looked at her, she's like, you're giving me that cocoon and butterfly look. You're not going to tell me, are you? And I was like, but, and so she totally embraced that. And then really find that I find that they can stick to it because there is, we've named it and we've said, and we've made it into something fun. So I think that's something that we really try to touch on. And then that skill is just applicable, I feel like, throughout your life. And so many, just that like idea of waiting and seasons in life and all those like different things that they'll hit in life. I think that'll be just something that'll stick with them. I love that. And and I think it's also too like good to communicate to kids like, yeah, 
that one wasn't for you, that's okay. We try and incorporate a lot of choice in our activities so that they, like, again, are trying all of these different things and at least getting a baseline exposure to it. But at the very least, like another kid-friendly reframe that we use is we say, be a good paper towel. So, okay, maybe you didn't know how to approach that. You felt totally lost, but absorb that, soak it up. All right, that's yours now. Nobody can take that knowledge away from you. So whether you knew it going in or not, you do now. And that's a super powerful skill too, to be able to learn from everything going on around you and seeing whether it was a failure or not, seeing that as an opportunity to grow and to continue to get better. And these are like the core supports, I feel like social and emotional wise in our programming that like are consistent throughout. And it's not always like a huge thing. Sometimes it's just something we mention as a focus at the beginning of a particular session or something our mentors will mention as a certain puzzle is coming up that is just ripe for that kind of conversation. I think our puzzles provide lots of really organic opportunities for us to come back to that growth mindset anchor chart that everybody made at the beginning of the year (laughs) and be like, this is happening right now. (laughs) And how does this feel? Gross? Like hard? Okay, cool. Let's soak it up. Let's be a good paper towel. That's why those really hard puzzles were their favorite at the end. Like they struggled through it. They had a blast and they're not going to forget that. So I think you know, the ways that we are providing opportunities to model the failure and what to do and give kids tools in their tool belt that they can then whip out or at the very least pep talk themselves when things aren't going the way that they would expect. These are the kinds of supports that all kids need, but in particular, like you had mentioned, certain gifted kids especially need my anxious learners, especially who aren't ready to take those risks, start to bring their guards down a little bit. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's great. And I would say also sharing their successes, because it's something that, like you said, sometimes people are really shy, like they don't want to be the one who's standing out as the one who always gets the answer. But sometimes you can share your knowledge and that's a really good thing. And you can do it in a way that is disarming to other people. And so we encourage a lot of times if we have someone who finishes a puzzle, it's really that one happens to be really easy for them. We're like, great. Why don't you go check with a friend and see if anyone needs help? Don't give them the answer. But see if you can hint them, you know, think see either you can hint them to get the puzzle. And it's so awesome to see them go to a different table and be like, so what do you think you might do next? And they'll start to use the questioning methods and they'll start to ask what their friends are seeing and what they're wondering. And I think that's awesome because a lot of times kids don't get that opportunity to really share their knowledge in a way that helps empower others, you know? Um, and we find that when they do that, the kids who are then solving the puzzle don't feel like, oh, Annie told me the answer because she didn't. She helped you get to the answer. She's doing the same thing we do. And so that to me is a really strong skill, especially for gifted kids too, who may be nervous about showing that they got the answer first and may not have the opportunity to really showcase that and be a peer leader. So that I think is something that's really cool. Very true. Oh my gosh, so valuable. So as like a teacher, I am in my brain thinking, I feel like anytime I get to hear about something new, I'm thinking practical, like, okay, what does this look like making this happen? So with Sober Quicken, is this something that people are using like at home? Is this something people are using like in the gen ed classroom or like how are people like integrating this into and like, where are people using this? I would say yes. And all of that. It's We offer it in a bunch of different ways. People can use it at home. It's something, especially with summer coming up and not that many mm-hmm. um, months, it's a way for kids to stay sharp. We have a subscription service that sends a quest to kids every month where they get a story 
And then the story is punctuated by open puzzle packet one and answer the, you know, and then there's a puzzle that they must answer before they go on, et cetera. So that's something that kids can use at home. Um, what we're finding more and more teachers excited about is using a version of that in the classroom. So we have a classroom edition kit of our Quest Club that teachers are using both in their general ed classrooms and in and with either with pullouts or with high ability classes, with gifted students one-on-one. There are a lot of different ways to use that, that Quest Club kit. And then we have after-school programs too that are, were, are being used. We have, I don't know, several, many classes going on right now. Every season we fall, winter, and spring, we have schools all over the country that are using, doing an after-school program. I think Sam mentioned it, the club, after-school club where they're, it's about an hour a week, hour and 15 minutes a week, depending on how much time you have once a week. And students come after school and participate in that way too. So there are a bunch of different ways. We really want this to be accessible to kids in, to as many kids as possible. So we really want to make that, and there, it's available at a bunch of different price points too, depending on budgets and, and timeframes too. Love that. Love how it's so many different ways to use it. So we always ask if there's just any students that y'all have come into contact with that just don't, I feel like we've talked about in previous episodes, like this stereotypical gifted student that people think of. And I didn't know if you had come into contact with any students throughout the years that you feel like just didn't fit that mold, but so you could give us like a, a little profile of that student, obviously no names or anything, but I didn't know if you guys had any that just came to mind. I had a few that I was thinking about. So I already kind of referenced like the anxious achiever who like, gosh, for those who know about like that's a Nyhart and their research around like the six different profiles of gifted kids. Like this was like your general successful student, but like these days we're seeing a lot of kids with anxiety around school and life. And we had already talked about how the puzzles disarming the cognitive load for them, like really helped them to get over some of those anxieties that they had for puzzle solving. But I've also had like some really socially quirky gifted kids that would probably fall in like the doubly labeled or 2E category. And I think that especially students who I've worked with who, who are on the spectrum, like the fantasy aspect and combining it like with that has really helped them um, get past like maybe some work production issues that they were having. Like the doing the work was really hard, but they were super strong weaver chanters and imaginative. And by helping those kids tap into those strengths that they have with their like crazy, awesome, different brain, um, you know, really kind of help them grow in other areas. And they were super successful. And even though a little socially quirky, like found others who also found this fantasy world cool. And maybe prior to this, hadn't really had a really close friend group because they were having trouble with social interaction. But all of a sudden they are thrust into this team and this story which for them, like it just clicked. And, you know, like this, these were also high ability kids. So they were able to engage in the content and find it interesting. But these were the kids who like, you can't get them to fill out the paper or do the puzzle, but here they are sitting for extended periods of time, working on this and talking with kids they never would have talked with before. And then after club, like hanging out with said kids, like to be able to be like, oh my God, I was like a part of you, like finding your people. That was really cool. And I, I just think for the many different kinds of learners that are out there, there are just so many ways that this program brings everybody in. Um, another kind of kid that this really connected with um, that I work with is, I guess I would call him like 
the underrepresented introvert are kids who are like really quiet, will fly under the radar. The student happened to come from underserved community. And, you know, like his teacher saw something in him and we threw him in the pool. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I think I see it too. And I think I realized he, he really opened up when it was this more intimate partner or small group activity with friends around this story. Again, like having fun and doing these challenges together allowed him to, in our world, it was flex his commons keeper a little bit when he had to not only, you know, solve the puzzle, but also work together with his group. It allowed me to see him in a different way and let his gifts shine a little bit in a way that maybe like I hadn't seen before. And I saw it coming in, but it wasn't really until I saw him talking with other kids and coming out of his shell a little bit that I was like, yes, there it is. And he loved it. So I think we talked a little bit at the beginning of the show that when we say giftedness, that's so many things. And there were so many types of brains out there, um, labeled or not. And I think it's really awesome to be able to provide you know, opportunities that are going to check all of these boxes for so many kids to really tap into whatever potential they've got and have an awesome time doing it together. Definitely. I always love listening to the profiles because I can think every single one you had mentioned, I would think of a kid that I've had before who like fit into that. And I was like, oh yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. And how people just don't maybe realize, like you said, how many different types of gifted students there are. There's not just one mold. So what short and long-term goals do you guys have for Silver Quicken? In the short term, we want to keep going, keep growing. We're a startup. We're still a startup uh, two and a half years in. So, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're scrappy. We're ducking and weaving as we move forward, um, looking for more, reach more kids, more schools, more teachers and families. Um, in the long term and sort of medium long term, build out not only the growth of the education side, but with the launch of novel number one in the series and then take that as far as we can. I don't want to make comparisons because I don't want to jinx it to any other fantasy novel out there about say a boy wizard or a half half uh, demigod, I think is the, right? <laughs> not making any comparisons, but we want to, we want to have the entertainment side grow as much as anything so we can pull kids into the education side. I mean, that's really where we come from, where we live. I mean, it's not to say, Oh, that's just in service of that's got to work on its own terms. Just like you got to lead with the fun. You got to lead a story with a story. Like I'm going to stop listening as soon as you're preaching it to me. Right. But if the story is fun and interesting and I really care about the kids, then along the way, Hey, I want more of that. And then, Hey, I can start learning. I can do the, I can subscribe to the puzzle kit and so forth. So we really see that as a way of enabling the education. So that's our medium to long-term goal. I'm just thinking about engagement. We hear so much about engaging students, finding ways to grab that attention and keep it. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if they're invested in this series, they, you know, it's going to just be obvious. They're going to go into wanting to do those activities and games. And I just think that'll be seamless. That's awesome. All right. So how can our listeners, you know, who've been listening and are like, oh my gosh, I want to be a part of this. I want to and get this with my kids or my students. What is the best way for them to get in contact with all of you? Email is easy. They can send an email to info at silverquicken.com. One of us will likely respond right away. And they can check out our website at silverquicken.com. 
We have information about the Quest Club and the after school programs on there. There's an interest form if a school, if someone from a school is interested in bringing it to their school, there's an interest form they can fill out that also gets sent to us. So there are a lot of ways to get in contact and we will be responsive. We're really eager to connect with teachers and families and students out there. So any way they can reach us, we'll get back to them. And we want people using puzzles and these kinds of things. I mean, you know, there are lots of ways to do this sort of thing. And we're not trying to say, hey, you have to go. If you if you buy into what we're talking about, then you must. We, we want to be part of a movement around these kinds of things. So if you've come up with a cool puzzle and you bring it to your class and it's like a way that they step outside of the everyday and engage with it, you're, you're, we're all part of the, we're all part of the same team. All right. So our last question, and I always really like listening to the different responses that we get for this question. And we hinted at it a little bit earlier, was just the divide that the term giftedness causes. Sometimes it, can lead to misconceptions. It can prevent students from being identified because they don't check those preconceived boxes. So I just wanted to ask, do you all agree that the term giftedness is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it? I think we all want to take a stab at this. I'll, as someone who had the label wrapped around me in the 70s and 80s, so that tells you how old I am, um, in kind of the old school way where the solution was acceleration. I actually really resisted the label, led to me being nine years old in sixth grade in an all boys school that was a lot of corporal punishment and physical stuff happened at that school. And I was way too young for that. And so I have problems with it. At the same time, through the Johns Hopkins program, C2 at the Center for Talented Youth, I, I found my people when I went to one of their camps and did a, a it was a writing class. So I, I've wrestled with it all my life. And it's, um, I, I think I have the most problem with it being like, oh, this is something that sort of fell out of the sky and you're supposed to turn around and to much, to whom much is given, much is expected, and all these kind of expectations around it. As I'd, I'd like to think of almost like untapped potential, and that's in everyone. Like, tell me who doesn't have untapped potential, and so that's that would be my answer to it. I want to piggyback off what you said, Chris, about potential, um, because for me, and I think I got at this a little bit at the beginning around the definition of giftedness. I think using a language that's more needs focused and recognizing like that these kids have specific learning needs and learning differences to be addressed. I think that kinds of kind of language works a little bit better. Sometimes I use like high capacity or like kids who happen to have a high ability because frankly, some of the kids I work with don't necessarily have a label, but there's still a need there that needs to be addressed, fostered, you know, like it, it doesn't matter. You want, like I said, to take that potential that you see and continue to grow it. And sometimes you need a, a different kind of teacher or coach in order to do that well. So like my groups, I call them brain stretching groups. And it's really funny because like, it'll never fail. Like each year I walk into a room and it always feels really gross as a specialist, like pulling kids out, even though like sometimes you just have to do that. And they're like, take me. And I'm like, okay, cool. Come on. Let's go pop some wheelies with your brain because really that's what this is about. And if this was fun for you and you're driven to do this, rock on with your bad self. Let's keep doing it. Keep coming to group. I don't care what your label is. If a teacher is coming to me and they see this student who's got like this like intense interest in a certain area to the point that they don't know what to do with them, label or not, that's still a kid who needs gifted education, right? 
So, I mean, it can manifest itself in so many different ways. And I think we have to be really inclusive with our language around giftedness. I think it's important to talk to kids about their gifts. And I think, again, like the whole gifted word, like makes it feel like exclusionary to some people who don't have said thing. And so I think by instead talking about like the ways that all kids can stretch their thinking and learn more and be excited and take off from where they are is really what we want to get out more with students. And so, you know, it never gets weird anymore. Now I'm like, cool. Did you find that fun? And some kids are like, yeah, so I won't be coming next week. I'm like, that's all right. Cool. And then I have other kids who I'm like, Hey teacher, did you know that this kid is a wizard with visual spatial thinking? And they're like, what are you talking about? And you show them what they've done. Cause as a specialist, I get to like do the weird stuff and they're just blown away. And that's part of why I love what I do is because I get to do the weird stuff and really help dig in a little deeper and see these things in kids. Um, so I don't know. I, I like what Chris said about trying to find that untapped potential or just, I don't know, we've got needy brains, you know, like it, kids whose brains need something different. And so like, it's really easy to talk to kids about like, well, your teacher told me your brain needs this, like no brainer. Cool. That's, it's not a special club. It's just, I'm going to get what I need now. Is that cool? That should be normalized in all schools. And I think we're moving towards that with the way that like schools talk about and support intervention and like small groups in general, like a lot of schools are calling it like what I need time now, because we recognize mm -hmm. that Kids are going to need all kinds of different things at each point in the year. And gifted education services is just one part of that. Or after school enrichment is just a part of that. So I, yeah, I would prefer to talk to it, talk about it in that way. I like that you kept using the word need and what they need. Because I think, I mean, that goes back to like the name of our podcast, They'll Be Fine. So many people think these gifted kids will be fine without, they don't need as much as everybody else. They don't have a need in reading or a need in math. But I love that you keep bringing it back to like, no, they still need more. They need other things. They still have a need. Every kid has a need. It's just they have different needs. And I really like how you keep bringing it back to them. I think that helps people like open up their eyes to like what giftedness truly is. I always think about Encanto, actually, that movie and how there was such stress for Mirabelle around gifts because she didn't have one, right? She wasn't labeled gifted, but she was the one who brought the family together, right? And she, she was, was, the there was so keeper. much. She was the common <laughs> keeper. And so when you think about like that, the last song, right? Where the gift, it's not about the gifts. It's about you, right? It's about the kid. It's about the whole student. And it's about, yeah, it's about meeting their needs where they are. And so I think it's all been said, but yeah, I do think that I don't know the best term for it, but I do think that figuring out where to meet kids where they are and take them further, whether it's uh, giftedness, so to speak, in reading or math or science or um, public speaking or, you know, what other kinds of things that are skills just as important in this world as, as some of our other gifts that we, that we label. I think that's the important, important thing is to really focus on for each kid, for each student, what, you know. How can we take them further? I love that connection to Encanto. I actually, my, this is very off topic, but my kids say that I look like Mirabelle and I'm actually wearing my Mirabelle like skirt today. Yay. It's like bluish. <laughs> these kids, it's so funny. Even kids not in my class, they're like, Mirabelle. I think when they see me coming down I the hallway. Oh, so I love funny. it. Oh my gosh. Encanto is such a great example of a story having such power. 
And that's mm. the kind of thing that we want to do with our story too, to help kids see themselves in all the different, in various different characters and really connect and, and learn something from it and, and emotionally too, that can bring it in. I'm not saying Encanto should have had puzzles in it and stopped the movie partway through until <laughs> now we got a cipher to solve, but maybe. One more thing, Chris, about the the story. I don't think we had touched on it just yet, but like with these 10 students, um, Chris does a really like amazing job of taking these profiles of kids, both gifted, labeled and not, and really bringing to life some of the personal struggles that they have with just their learning and their lives in general. So I think Again, to bring kids into a story where they not only think it's cool and want to keep reading, but start to see themselves in these characters. I think that literature can be such a, a transformative thing for kids. Like some of the characters in the story, I'll just talk about one of them. There's Sophia. She's like, you know, grade A student. She's really good at school, but she's got huge self-doubts and is worried about, am I going to get the question wrong? And sometimes doubting herself. Like we had just talked about the stereotypical girl who lacks self-confidence in their abilities. Um, you know, we try to bring some of these vignettes of all kinds of different learners and what they bring to the world through our story. And so, you know, if just one kid connects in one way with some of what we are doing, I just, I think that could be really powerful for students. And I'm super just excited to be a part of that process and share what I'm seeing in classrooms and help make it as authentic as possible so that we really are relevant and supporting real-time needs that we're seeing.